Hello, this is For Your Ears Only, an audio series that takes some deep dives into the world of podcasting. I'm Martin Spinelli. And I'm Lance Dan. And Lance, I want to start today with a a thought experiment, if that's okay Okay. with you. So what I'd like you to do is I'd like you to imagine you're walking up the hill at the back of your garden to that little wooded area, and there's a shed there. And it's your ideal shed, your perfect shed. Can you describe for me that perfect shed? Uh, so not the actual shed, but the perfect shed is is quite open and it's got glass fronted and folding doors and there's a, just, just a simple table in there, no clutter. Um, and there's a laptop on the table and there's a book on the laptop I'm writing on my own and without you. And <laughs> there's, 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 there's a table and chairs and there's some decent speakers and it's a peaceful place where I can work. Okay, can I ask you, how, how do you feel about your shed? It, yeah, it's, it's my skiff. It's my safe place that I've thought about often and will never attain. All right. Well, I'm now going to show you a photo of a real shed, my shed in the back of my garden. And I just want you to describe it. Oh, that's not like my shed. That's got a kind of wheelbarrow. It's got uh, some straw in it. It's got a lot, of, a lot of chemicals in there. <laughs> Jesus, you're not organic, are you? Aerosols, weed killer, so, and, and ooh, stuff on the floor. No, that's, that's not the same shed. Okay. No. So, so how do you feel about my shed? Mm, prosaic, pragmatic, uh, you know, mildly dangerous. <laughs> so if I were to ask you tomorrow which of those two sheds you remembered most clearly, your imagined shed or my real shed, which would it be? Uh, the, I've forgotten your shed already. So, yeah, definitely my shed is a place that's, that's in my mind. All right, fair enough. So that's what we're going to take as our starting point today, this imaginative work done inside your head when you're listening to something. And now there are, are quite a few studies that show that this creative engagement, this creative mental work helps you develop connections with the people and the things you're listening to. So this isn't going to be a show entirely about sheds. No, not unless you want it to be. I think it's uh, it's more sounds more like the old idea of pictures are better on radio. Yeah. So we're going to be thinking about how that creative mental work that you do when you listen to some kinds of podcasts makes for a deeper connection and engagement with what you're hearing. And this is all particularly true when you're listening on earbuds. Yeah, and how that engagement can lead to quite intimate experiences that sort of entice us to feel empathy and develop a sense of trust with the people that we're listening to. And then we're going to listen to how that empathy can be toyed with and played with in very creative and sometimes uncomfortable ways. A bit later, we're going to dip into two Radiotopia podcasts that are particularly good at intimacy and empathy. That's The Heart and Love and Radio. And in case you don't know them, The Heart is a sex-positive podcast that deals with relationships of all kinds, and it's often quite graphic and quite explicit. Certainly not the kind of thing you're likely to stumble onto on public radio. And Love and Radio is a deceptively simple interview podcast that deals with a range of social issues through compelling stories. And you could tell by their titles alone, The Heart and Love and Radio, even before you listen to them, that these are podcasts that have this idea of intimacy and closeness baked into them from the very beginning. But aren't intimacy and certainly sex pretty common when you're talking about radio? They're not new to podcasting. Yeah, well, sex certainly, if you misspent your youth as I did listening to Howard Stern and Dr. Ruth Westheimer. Here's a little montage that our producer Jack put together, which takes us on a slightly tawdry walk through sex on radio from Mae West in the 1930s up through Russell Brand more recently. 
Garden of Eden is all yours. What do you say? Sounds all right. But it's forbidden fruit. Listen, what are you, my friend in the grass or a snake in the grass? I'll do it. Mm. Now you're talking. Here, right in between those pickets. I'm, I'm stuck. I'll shake your hips. There, there, now you're through. I shouldn't be doing this. Yeah, but you're doing all right. Now get me a big one. I feel like doing a big apple. <laughs> We do our own edition of Shakespeare, don't we? Yes. Mm. We've rewritten it ourselves in up-to-date Polari. All the world's a stage and all the Omis and Polones merely players. <laughs> they have their exits and their entrances. That's true, Mr. Orn. We all, uh, we all have our exits and our entrances. Hey, girls, sit on top of your radios. Well, I know I do. Yeah. Turn the volume all the way up. I'm not kidding you if you want a real rut. Can you go up to your bedroom with the radio? Oh, you want me to sit on the radio? Yeah, would you do it? Turn it up loud? Yeah, turn it up as loud as it goes, and then just sit right on top of it. Wait a minute, I gotta get the right station. <laughs> All right, go ahead. Loud as it can go. Okay. Are you sitting on it? Yeah. Here we go. Uh, uh, Have you ever had sex as Elvis? <laughs> Ooh. Uh, you have, haven't you? I can tell from the uh, U. I've done it um, without the jumpsuit, but I have kept the case. Uh, I have bought something from them, but it's a bit embarrassing. Things haven't been going great in the bedroom department, so my wife and I have bought some marital aids. We bought two vibrators, some butt plugs, and, um, do you know love beads? I bought a vibrator, and lots of my girlfriends had had one for years and years and years, and I'd never had one, because I thought, I don't want anything unnatural, you know. What about the vibrator? Coward. What happened? <laughs> Nothing? Are you a little aroused? Uh, excuse me? Are you? Oh, yeah, all right. I'm aroused. Oh, forget it. So there's lots of innuendo there and more obvious stuff. Yeah, it's sort of full frontal. But it's harder to hear on those examples what I would call real intimacy. Real intimacy, especially for academics, can feel a little bit unsettling, a little bit uncomfortable, and maybe even a bit dangerous. They like to call it out. I once did a... Um talk at the ICA where I was sort of sort of expressing the great strength of this medium is the intimacy you have with the listener and the first question the Q&A was someone sort of asking a very dry way why do we want intimacy why should we get close to the listener and I just thought no one's been intimate with you for a long time have they <laughs> and uh, you know this is academics want to lectern as a barrier and a big gap between themselves and their audience so you know why should you Look for that in your podcasting and your media. And when they do talk about intimacy, it's often a kind of much more general social intimacy. It's kind of like camaraderie or a kind of collective mission. It's, it's not a personal connection with someone else. It's not the kind of thing that we're pointing to when we're talking about intimate podcasts here today. So both Love and Radio and The Heart are podcasts produced in America, largely by North Americans. And there's been a lot of talk recently about a more personal American style of audio production. And many of the Brits that we interviewed for this project were really quite keyed into this distinction. One of those people was Alan Hall, who runs the independent production company Falling Tree and is a longtime producer of montage works for the BBC. And he talks about some of the more reserved traits that exist in British and traditional radio broadcasting as opposed to what he hears in podcasting. From the radio world that I stumbled into all those years ago, it was characterised by modesty, 
definitely compared to press or TV. It was characterised by an anonymity. And you might recognise a voice, but you wouldn't know the look of the person. And you could be invisible almost. It was characterised by a kind of a more intelligent consideration of something. It wasn't looking at the surface. It was it tended to be going deeper into something. And the stuff that really appealed to me was that it was about there was an elegance of production. Not all of those things can be applied in the podcast sphere, I don't think. Because they tend not to be that modest. They tend actually to be quite, hey, this is Jed. Hey, this is, you know. And, and that's because they have to be, because they have to give identity. And they have to give a brand. And I think in general, the kind of British and the BBC types do tend to be a little bit more modest and reserved. And I've worked with presenters who have said, why should I put myself into this? Why should I let the audience know about me? And they want to keep a mask up almost to protect themselves from the audience. Yeah. And in that interview you did with Alan, he's really, really clear about that. And he says that he sometimes feels that podcast intimacy is used to create a sort of club that people are invited to contribute money to. um, And it may generate a kind of community for them. Um, it's almost a necessity of the form to draw people in so that you can then fund your podcast by making them feel part of it. And I said to him, you know, could you do that yourself if the BBC had to change their model? And he was like, no, I, you know, I, can't, I couldn't sell Alan Hall T-shirts or invite people to my gigs. And part of that has to do with the kind of work he produces, though, right? Yeah, he does these very beautiful montage pieces that aren't presenter-led. There's no one there leading you through and holding your hand, and therefore they're not stamping their personality on it. And this hand-holding criticism is something that's really common around a lot of American podcasts. In fact, Julie Shapiro, the executive producer of Radiotopia, picks up on this all the time, she says, when she's going around the world promoting the Radiotopia podcast, that there's this criticism that um, they're too hand-holdy. But Lance, let me just back up for a moment and ask you why you might want to hold hands. Well, perhaps because I'm feeling lost and lonely, or perhaps because I'm feeling warm and happy and in love. Ooh, so you're either walking through a park with someone you love, or you're Uh, on a treacherous mountain path and you don't want to get lost and fall off a cliff. Yeah, that one. Okay, that one. So we have this connection between feeling good and wanting to stay on the path, wanting to stay on the path of the story, right? Okay, I can see where you're going with this now. So there's this connection to be made between story and intimacy, between story and empathy. A lot of the highly intimate and empathetic podcasts that we've come across in the course of doing our research are also the most story-driven, wouldn't you say? Yeah, because the narrative is used as a way of forging connections with people, to understanding them and to stop facts just being facts, but making them into something that resonates. And what better way to come to feeling something for someone or come to feeling strongly about someone even than hearing their story and seeing the world through their eyes for a bit? Now, the critic Arthur Frank puts it really, really clearly. He says, to be empathetic is to know someone else's story. So there's this natural connection between story and feeling. Yes, and you hear this connection between story and empathy really clearly in some of the bonus parts that come in Love and Radio. They call it the Secrets Hotline. 
So the Secrets Hotline is a sort of confessional space where people phone into the podcast anonymously and they leave a message about things that they're embarrassed of or ashamed of, big things and small things. And we as listeners are subtly prompted about how to hear and how to listen to these people's stories in a non-judgmental and empathetic way. So here's a little example of that Secrets Hotline with an intro from Love & Radio host Nick Vanderkolk. And don't forget, call the anonymous Love and Radio Secrets hotline, like this listener just did. I'm a soccer mom. There is a secret about me that no one in my life knows. Between the years of 2004 and 2005, I worked as an escort. I'm married now. And not even my husband knows, and it bothers me a lot. So it feels good to be able to say it to people that don't know me and that hopefully aren't judging me. The non-judgmental listening aspect of that is really, really key. At the end of that voice message, the woman says, it's, it's great to finally tell people about this who aren't going to judge me. You also hear this set up for non-judgmental listening a lot in the heart too, don't you? There's a particular episode that you wanted to talk about with that. Yeah, I'm thinking about the episode called How to Become a Princess, which is about a transgender snowplow driver. And there's a key moment there where the main character finds herself alone and really, really depressed in a homeless shelter with only her her doll for company. And she's talking about how grateful she is to have this doll who's going to listen to her and not judge her. So there was five women in my room and two of the other girls in my room would often ask if they could borrow one of my teddy bears because they couldn't have Franny. But... Um, In our room, you could close your eyes and everything was okay. And we had our babies to play with and everybody was dealing with loneliness, right? So so then you have dolls, so you're not alone. And they're really good listeners too. And sometimes they come up with some really good advice. You have this modeling of empathetic listening right there in the podcast. The doll sort of stands in for us, right? This, this is how we're invited to listen as listeners as well. There's also a great example of empathetic listening being modeled for us in Love and Radio, specifically in an episode called How to Argue. And it's about an African-American musician called Daryl Davis who engages with Klansmen largely through just listening to them. And he manages to get them to leave the Klan just by listening. So here's a bit of Daryl Davis. He said that he respected me, the imperial wizard of the Ku Klux Klan. He said, we may not agree on everything, but at least he respects me to sit down and listen to me. And I respect him to sit down and listen to him. The most important thing that I learned was that while you are actively learning about someone else, you are passively teaching them about yourself. You challenge them, but you don't challenge them rudely or violently. You do it politely and intelligently. And when you do things that way, chances are they will reciprocate. Daryl Davis on Love & Radio modeling a transformative, empathetic listening. So, Martin, when you spoke with Caitlin Prest of The Heart and Brendan Baker of Love and Radio in Brooklyn, 
because I couldn't go out there. Well, I was actually in Brooklyn for Caitlin, but Chicago for Brendan. Oh, yeah, great. And I was in Brighton. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> so, and uh, they talked about, you know, the production of The Heart and Love and Radio, and they were talking about how they wanted people to listen to their shows in a very particular and intimate way. My ideal listener is, you know, someone who who isn't multitasking, someone who's not driving, someone who's not doing their dishes, someone who's like laying on their bed at night with their eyes closed and making the podcast like their their primary point of attention, you know, the, the primary thing that they're focusing on. And I think that podcasting, you know, just the mechanics of podcasting uh, allow for that in a way that radio doesn't. And that was Brendan Baker, and he's talking about his idealized listener. That's the listener we all want, though, isn't it? Mm. You know, somebody who's not doing anything else and 100% paying attention to you. But actually, I think they must be doing something more because you can listen to their shows whilst washing up or doing the chores and still follow what's going on. Yeah, absolutely. Two things to say about that. I think research does exist that shows that most people do listen on earbuds to podcasts, but also... I think what Baker is talking about is the kind of listener he wants. And he wants that kind of listener because it helps him achieve a kind of intimacy that he's striving for. That way of listening makes that kind of intimacy more possible. And they even go so far on Love and Radio to include in the meta tags, when you search Love and Radio on a search engine, it comes up with listen with headphones. And Caitlin Prest is also very, very clear on this too. Here she is talking about the relationship that's possible with headphone listening. Podcasting is a is more of a one-on-one relationship. People who make things on the radio are kind of like broadcasting, right? Like they're, it, it feels like they're talking to... I, I make the analogy of like, like they're, they're in a theater, they're in a room full of people. And that's sort of the tone that a lot of radio shows take, is that they're talking to, you know, like a big, wide endless audience. Whereas with podcasting, I think that they that a lot of the time it gets created for an individual. It's a one-on-one. You're thinking about, so often you're really thinking about people listening in their headphones, um, you know, walking around with their phone. You know, it's not people sitting in the car with their family. Let me ask you, would you, would you use someone else's earbuds? Mm, not not someone I didn't know. My son Monty found some in the street the other day. I was like, Daddy, look what I found. I was like, put those down. They've got other people's ear secretions on them. And they said, yeah, that's that thing of like, they are a very intimate thing. Would you share a toothbrush? Would you share earbuds? But they do, They that, I think we feel that way because they're invasive. Earbuds in particular, placed as they are kind of within the opening of the skull, within the opening of the ear canal, they sort of collapse the physical space between me speaking and you listening, right? They're very, they're literally inside your head, aren't they? It's inside your body that's incredibly intimate and personal space that they take up. Yeah, it's a totally different experience than anything that came before it, except for maybe stethoscopes, which is a way of getting us inside someone else's body, right? And that's why sex on podcasts is much more intimate. We actually sort of experience it inside our bodies. Do you want to play an example of real sex from the heart, for example? 
Oh, you know, um, when we were prepping for this episode, I listened again to that that segment of the heart of oral sex on the heart that you're talking about, um, and it just felt really, really weird and kind of creepy without its context, without its kind of narrative buildup. So I think um, if listeners want to hear that, they're just going to have to find that example in the heart themselves, or imagine it for themselves. They could, they could imagine it in a shed, even, <laughs> or I could recreate it for you, Martin. Oh. Okay, another thing that earbud listening, or at least the potential of it, uh, allows is very close listening, and it allows the producers to explore and play with sound in extremely subtle ways. They can almost be subliminal. They can take it down to tiny, tiny granular elements. Here's a good example of that from The Heart. The show will be waiting for you. Go to our website, theheartradio.org, and donate whatever you can now. I can wait. I'll wait. I'll wait. Just do it now theheartradio.org. We love you. Thank you. So if you're listening with headphones, or better yet, earbuds, what we're pointing to is that tiny, barely audible little whisper, isn't it? We love you. Thank you. Yeah, that's right. It's that tiny little thank you at the end that's barely audible that you couldn't hear if you weren't listening on earbuds. These little eardrops that I call them, they invite an even more heightened attention and more intense listening. They're like Easter eggs just placed through for the listener to, you know, feel they're found for themselves, aren't they? Yeah. Which kind of creates, yeah, I think that involves the listener. It makes them have a personal experience. Oh, I've discovered this little thing just for me. Yeah. I, I also, I think the, what that kind of listening does help with is it encourages repeat listening. You can go back to the shows and rediscover things that you weren't aware of before. It does reward your just just going back in and go, okay, then there's little nuances and little kind of twists and turns inside these shows that you might not have originally been aware of. Yeah, it's a really clear difference between podcast listening and radio listening. One of the ways you talk about this highly empathetic listener having a very intimate experience in our book is to compare the listener to a wedding guest, right? Do you want to say some more about that? Yeah, sure. But first, I just want to hit pause for a moment and just say that if you come from a culture with very strong currents of irony and cynicism, some of the next bits might be a bit hard going for you. What, what culture might you be talking about there, Martin? I <laughs> yeah, can't imagine. Well, if the shoe fits, just lighten up. I promise you'll survive. So this idea of the intimate podcast listener as a wedding guest comes from the heart episodes, Caitlin plus Mitra, which are about the working relationship of Caitlin Prest and Mitra Caboli and about their personal and professional dramas. And it resolves in this quite sweet proposal and the events that follow. Have a listen. I'm her date to the opera. We're sitting on a red velvet divan, high as fuck. Samara lent me a fancy dress, but I still have hairy armpits and I'm not even wearing a bra. Mitra's hair is perfect. She's wearing dark red lipstick and heels that somehow match my dress. We should get married. Out of nowhere, she says we should get married. It's quite an odd and uncanny moment. They have this very, very intimate working relationship that we've heard evolve over the course of the series. The really interesting thing occurs when on the show and on social media, they invite us their listeners to come to their wedding. So the podcast sort of becomes a marriage and there's a ceremony that seals their bond with us listening or if we were lucky enough to get tickets even watching. And the listeners are sort of witnesses invited into a world where the podcast has spilled out into real life. They're physically involved in this situation, the relationship. 
and their presence augments the closeness. Yeah, that's right. And here's a little excerpt from that ceremony in Brooklyn, which you can hear in the podcast. We are gathered here today to celebrate love, business, partnership, and radio. We exchanged earrings that looked almost exactly the same, but slightly different. We wrote vows. Mitra Kaboli, I love you. You make me feel like anything is possible. So listening to that excerpt from the ceremony um, is a suggestion that to go forward, I need to marry you, Martin? I'm losing track here. Um, well, you haven't proposed yet, Lance. Maybe it's, is it more generally about creative relationships, not necessarily ours? I think it may be. So mm. the interesting thing for me about these episodes is the openness of the invitation to attend their wedding, right? When the wedding happens, there are no party crashers. No one is heckling. There's no vetting of guests. And Preston Caboli, they really put themselves out there in a very, very vulnerable way. But they seem rewarded for that. There's a lot of trust on their part. I mean, if you imagine that this took place on social media and it was live on Twitter and Periscope, they get torn to pieces. Whereas here they're doing something very intimate in a very public way, almost asking to get torn to pieces, but then it doesn't happen. So how do you account for that? I think it's because it's opt-in, because the only people there have chosen to be there and they understand it and they're part of that relationship and part of that community. Yeah, absolutely. And if you compare these wedding episodes to, say, a radio phone-in, the dynamic is really, really different, right? The kind of invitation is out there for people to call in, and people are chosen for the scene that they're going to make, right? For the aggravation they're going to cause, for their aggressiveness. It's just a totally different dynamic. They're trying to set up confrontation, and also it's being very controlled and tailored by the producers on a phone-in. Yes. It's the opposite here. Here's a little creative piece that our producers Jack and Ella put together that engages with this idea of intimacy. And they did it using a binaural microphone, so you definitely want to listen to this on earbuds. From St. Augustine's Confessions. D.H. Lawrence. Women in love. Lady Chatterley's lover. They threw off their clothes. And he gathered her to him. They threw off their clothes and, and found her. I am divided between past and what is yet to come. flesh, the body of mysterious night upon the body of mysterious night. She had her desire of him. My soul torn to pieces by chaos. communication dark, subtle. We can neither hear, nor feel, nor understand. We can only see. I'm sure that is entirely chastity and self-restraint. I want us to be together without bothering about ourselves, to be really together, because we are together. What does love look like? As if it were a phenomenon. Has the hand not to we have to maintain by our own effort. Has the feet to speed desire is better than to possess. The finality of the end was dreaded as deeply as it was desired. Let us love. But not just yet. I held my heart back from embracing anything 
since I was afraid to hurt again, and in this suspended nowhere I was being all the more killed. You've got to learn not to be before you can come into being. But I was not with you. It was such Just to be still with her, to be perfect and still and together in a peace that was not sufficient. I cannot measure my love, nor know how it falls short. Forked flame between me and I cannot That's what I abide by and will abide by. Never swerving. You were within. And I was without, and I sought you out there. Unlovely, I rushed aimlessly among the lovely things you had made. You were with me, but I was not with you. Until hidden it had a in thrill the of sanctuary its own of your being. A queer, vibrating thrill inside the this body. Alone I know. A final spasm of self-assertion, like the last word. That's what I abide by and will abide me. by. And I am it had a thrill of its own too, a queer, vibrating yours. thrill inside the body, a final spasm of self-assertion like you. the last word. It's the one insane. Exciting. And very like the row of asterisks that can be put to show the end of a paragraph and break in the feeling. It's the one insane taboo left. Sex. As and a natural, all wealth is poverty if it is not my God. They won't have it. And they'll kill you before they let you have it. So, does this empathy that we're talking about being generated from intimate podcasting, ever go wrong? Do you have any examples for us that deviate from the kind of warm and positive fuzzy feelings? Yeah, sure. All the things we've been talking about up until now are really successful at creating empathy around people who are sympathetic to liberal-minded listeners. They're persecuted people, trans people, people on the margins of society, people struggling through difficult relationships. Um, But these same techniques can also be used to create an empathetic response to people who, in the end, are quite unpleasant and even revolting. And they can be used to invite listeners to question how they might have been manipulated into that feeling. You're talking about a red dot from Love and Radio here, aren't you? Yes. That episode is really, really powerful because it tells the story of a convicted sex offender who victimized a child. In the beginning, when we don't know anything about his criminal past, we hear this scene in which a man called Frank is being attacked, seemingly for no reason, in front of his house one day. Get out of the way. Get that bottle up because that hammer's coming down and boom. And then again, as I'm backing, boom. And that's, I guess, when the head of the hammer got stuck in the bottle. And that knocked it then out of my hand. It exploded as I hit the railing with my back and I went up and over and down onto the ground behind me. And vignettes like this, from his perspective, they pile up and they pile up, and we really can't help but develop some kind of connection for this guy um, for quite a bit, even after we learn about his crime. Here's a slightly later moment from where Frank is reflecting on his situation and on his, his isolation. 
I feel like I'm, I'm not human because I've done this. And now I've got to carry it. And, you know, who can you go and tell? No one. No one. And the thing about listening to that episode is it gradually builds and builds and builds the doubt and the mm. suspicion you have. They sort of give him enough rope to hang himself. Now initially, you're caught in sort of back and forth between having empathy with him and then gradually realizing quite how reprehensible he is. They put you right on that cusp for a long time before you eventually tip over and realize how bad he is. True. You, you kind of find yourself in this weird relationship with him, whether you want to be in a relationship or not. In the beginning, this is okay because it kind of feels natural. But by the end, it feels really deeply uncomfortable. And even Frank himself explicitly invokes this idea of a relationship. He uses that word relationship um, that he and the producers are in and that by extension, he and we, the listeners, are in. He uses that as a kind of rationale for him to go forward with the more unsavory parts of his story. And we're not going to play that bit for you because out of the full narrative context, it doesn't make for good listening. But we also don't want to put too much of this guy into your heads if we can avoid it. There's a point at the end where they let him talk and they've let him talk and they've let him talk and you hear something you almost never hear on Love and Radio, which is you hear the producer's voice come in and intervene and sort of say, that's not right. You know, they question him and they've, what they're doing, they're breaking the spell of his narrative there, they're almost like they're breaking the fourth wall. And actually when I kind of listened to that, I almost needed that moment as a listener because it was getting so oppressive and I was sort of, you know, feeling so uncomfortable with what he was saying that to hear someone else kind of confirm my feelings and someone from within the show, you think, oh, thank God, you know, it's all right. The show's all right. These people don't agree with him. You almost needed someone in there to objectively back up what you were feeling. Yeah, yeah. That's a moment where I really wanted someone to hold my hand. It, it, it was just necessary. It's really interesting when you think about a red dot next to all of the other episodes that we've dipped into over the course of the show today. All those other episodes have these intimate relationships that feel quite warm and fuzzy and where the empathy that we're building up is really kind of its own reward and it's totally unproblematic. But here we have this moment where the whole project of inviting empathy is turned upside down and shown to be manipulative and maybe even potentially dangerous. They're exploiting the power of it here. Um, I mean, there are other examples of this in Radiolab. So there's one about rhino hunters where mm. you begin to understand why people would hunt rhinos. And it's, you see the world from their point of view. There's a comparable episode about a guy who has a brain tumor and it puts pressure on his skull and the brain sort of changes and he starts doing unusual things and he starts obsessing over pictures of children. But you understand their behavior they draw you into feeling from this person's point of view from some sort of larger liberal purpose they kind of help you understand the world from these people's point of view but the more you get stuck into a red dot with frank the more uncomfortable it becomes without some greater lesson being learned i mean why do you think they did this to us why did they build a podcast around this reprehensible person 
That's a really good question. Uh, but I think it does have a moral lesson. It's not a moral about a particular person or a particular point of view. I think it might be a, a lesson about podcasting itself and about the kind of relationships that have developed around podcasting, about podcast intimacy and podcast empathy. And in a way, it reminds me of the 1938 radio broadcast of The War of the Worlds. That's another audio experience that really kind of questions a moral and can only happen once. Because for, after hearing the show the first time or after, the, after experiencing the show the first time, people would no longer trust news bulletins 100%. They became suspicious and doubt would be seeded in their mind. Yeah, absolutely. And in the same way, you have love and radio here throwing up a red flag around the idea of empathy and reminding us, like we were reminded in 1938, not to trust the special news bulletin absolutely and uncritically. Here we're being reminded not to overinvest and have too much faith in podcast empathy, which can be manipulative. The interesting thing about the show is that you can only experience it in itself once. Like if you go back to it from the beginning, you know what sort of person Frank is. You don't empathize with him anymore. And it becomes more of a clinical relationship. And when I went back to it, I began to spot more seeds about who he was and his behavior. And, you know, my guard was up from the off. And in a way, actually, by the listeners having listened to our show, we've sort of taken that experience away from them. They can approach it as an audio text, but they're not going to get the same experience that they would if they didn't know how it was going to end. It's kind of like a spoiler. It is a spoiler. Sorry. So that was for your ears only, talking about intimacy, empathy, and sheds. <laughs> if any of the topics we've talked about on today's episode have piqued your interest, then you could find out much more in our book, Podcasting the Audio Media Revolution, which is now out from Bloomsbury. I'm Martin Spinelli. And I'm Lance Dan. And you can follow our podcast on social media at Ears Only Podcast and find us online at earsonlypodcast.com. On the next installment of For Your Ears Only, Lance, I've got a story to tell you. Would it be a story about narrative, Martin? You'll have to tune in. <laughs> tune in. For Your Ears Only was produced by Jack F. Dewars and Ella Gray-Thomas. This episode was written and presented by Martin Spinelli and Lance Down. And Martin was also our executive producer. Andrew Duff created our sound, and Rachel Sparks and Ian McKenna where our actors. We had support from Arts Council England, Bloomsbury Publishing, and the School of Media, Film and Music at the University of Sussex and the School of Media at the University of Brighton. Our distribution was made possible by Reframe of the University of Sussex and Resonance FM. And we had support in our initial interviews from a British Academy, Leverhulme Research Grant. For more information, please visit earsonlypodcast.com.